Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Welcome to Hope and Heresy. Today's episode is called Grief the Countercultural Way. We're talking about making room for ourselves and each other to grieve. So today we're talking about grief and loss. This conversation was inspired really by the conversation we had on climate change a few weeks ago. We were talking about Joanna Macy's model, and we were talking about this need for grief. And we kind of got off on what eventually sounded like a tangent, but it was so interesting. We thought, we need to come back to that. So this whole concept of creating space for grieving and all of the things that there are to grieve and how in our culture we really don't provide the room for ourselves or for each other. I suspect if we did this better for each other, we would be more willing to give ourselves some space, but but we don't. I think that's an interesting point we should loop back to, right? Okay. That because we structurally don't do it well for each other, it makes it even harder to do it well for ourselves or lay right. claim to that space for ourselves. But I think, you know, if you think about anybody's policies, HR policies, right? I don't know about yours, but we don't have bereavement leave in ours. We have, it would just we have like be, a week, which I think is... So I don't think we norm. even have a week. We just have, you know, <laughs> you would take a personal day or you would get, by the grace of your institution, you would right. get some days off right. for bereavement. But it's not, it's not something that we institutionalize here right. in any kind of real way. Right. I and mean, we get a week for an immediate member of the family. So if my child died... You'd have one I can week have the week off. As the one week would be sufficient <laughs> to like, like manage right. to refocus yourself into life. Right. So so this is the thing. I think that that part of what we're talking about is that whatever the grieving is, right, and there's lots of different things to grieve, we have an expectation that it should move with a certain kind of rapidity through a certain set of steps, and you should be able to like make your way through it and be done. Right. Right? Which is like maybe part of the impact of just western culture in general right it's definitely the american story right pull yourself up by your bootstraps so that we're okay with people grieving for certain things like death of an immediate family member right you can have your week right and that's kind of the norm i mean i don't mean this norm for labor practices but it's the norm culturally that we give people very specific amounts of time and brief amounts of time and then they're supposed to be done but the bigger implication there right is that we also assume that events whether it's a death a breakup a loss of um a volunteer position even like whatever it is right like that a loss we assume that we know for other people where that loss should fall oh yeah on a like hierarchy of Absolutely. grieving right so 
for some people, your dad dies. You're actually not that sad, right? right? I mean, for other people, you suddenly lose this position at the yeah. you know museum you've been volunteering at, and your whole identity yep. is sort of brought to a puddle, right? right? Like right. it doesn't. We make so many assumptions right. about what is acceptable thing an acceptable thing to be sad about, right? Right. It's like loss of a pet. Some people yeah. completely get the profound grief that follows that and some people and for some people really they weren't that attached to the pet in the first place and it's you know more convenient now not to have them around you know what's interesting I think is that in part this is about the necessity of structure right in other words there's some there is some value in being able to predict there's like cultural value in being able to predict and also financial value if we're talking about corporate systems and capitalist systems and being able to predict what people need when they're going to need it in relation to what, right? Like if it was just, if the policy was tell us when you need to take time off to be sad and we'll give you whatever time you need, that actually, like there's a detriment to something like that, right? You can't have that kind of loose system. And at the same time, like what would it look like to have that? What would it? What would the other implications be for all of the other systems we operate under, right. and what we value, right? Like those things are necessary because we value productivity, right? Right. So how we institutionalize the creation of the space we need for grief, regardless of what it is that has triggered it, that it could be, it could be the loss of even a volunteer position, loss of status, loss of place retirement for some people is a joy and for some is an enormous loss. So creating space for people and at the same time respecting that we all approach the world and exist in the world in really different ways so that what I value and what matters and how I identify with the world is different from other people's and to have a sense of, of respect for each other's process and values and who we are. I think that all matters. So this raises an interesting question for me, right? So I agree with you. We all come at the world differently. We we move through it differently. We respond to different things differently. And I think part of what we're identifying is this way that our culture kind of rejects negative processing and, and doesn't make the space that we all need to do things like grieve. Now, with that said, this raises for me this interesting question around like religion and ritual, right? Mm. Because so, I mean, anybody who's done any sort of studying of ritual or religion and has participated in ritual and religion understands that part of what's going on is you're being offered a somewhat corporate, and I don't mean that like corporation corporate, but corporate as in communal, um, a sort of corporate experience that helps you process. So it's almost like we've done all of the bad things. We as a culture have removed any kind of corporate moving, not all of it, but you know what I'm saying. Corporate moving through grief. Like we've taken away the meaningful rituals that helped people for millennia process and get to the other side, right? And at the same time, we've also gone, but whatever it is you need to do on your own, we're not gonna give you time to do it or we're not gonna validate it. Right. So we've kind of pushed away any opportunity. I actually think that the the one place that religion still lives, though, is around life transition. So when do you call a minister? Are you 
you're getting married or someone died. But so, but so around death, yes, right? We'll let people have a day off for a funeral. We'll understand if somebody says, I can't right. come to that party because my uncle Right, but just not died. around grief. But yeah. not around grief yeah. more generally, right. right? That's true. And yes, there are some places where we still do that ritual, uh, sort of the cusp of adulthood, adulthood, but you know what I'm saying? Right. Like the 13 year old ritual where you become right. a, an adult in the <laughs> world, right? And, and some of that's about grieving. Right. Yes, Whether we go. talk about it that yeah. way or not, right? Those that for the parents too. When it comes to those, yeah, yeah. But that transition is a little bit of like grieving the loss of childhood and stepping into something else. I would argue to you that not that you're going to argue, with me <laughs> that, but I would argue that like that moment, we recognize that moment of like turning, you know, fourteen, thirteen, yeah. whatever, and we and we recognize death, and there's not a lot else in the middle that we're Marriage. willing to concede. Yeah time for grieving her oh yeah yeah or or that we're willing to attend to with processes and ritual right and like deep spiritual understanding right yeah we don't create rituals for each other and we don't create time i, I once did a ritual for a woman who gave a child up for adoption mm. it was so powerful and and really necessary she was maybe 17 and was committed to this adoption but after it happened she had trouble and you know culturally we don't we just we don't know what to do with that it was her mother I think it was her mother or was in a conversation she and I had together of she this she needs something to let it go and she needs women around her who are gonna let her cry and be as sad as she is, which doesn't have to have any implications for this child or their family, right? It's just her grief, and it needs its own space. So this, this is, okay. So I feel like the, the cultural response would be, well, you chose to do that. Right. So you should It's so much be better for this about, kid, right? right? Aren't you and happy that, for him? Right. That gets back to this question of the complexity of emotion and response. Right. Right? That we just, we want things to be simple and sort of black and white and like either you are happy about something or you're sad about something and if you've made that choice then you don't get to right. feel feelings about right. it you have to just you know we jokingly thought of calling this episode of the podcast feel your feelings because there is some <laughs> level in which that's what we're talking about right is that we don't make the space for people to feel right complex things in relation to the way that their lives are going right and there are real implications for the the shared life we then have because people who don't experience their own grief or who somehow deny it or push it down behave in other ways that are really inappropriate they get very angry which is the common response and so they're just difficult to be around or they make really poor choices or they become I mean you know then there's sort of the bigger implications they become alcoholic and they abuse drugs or they abuse food or sex or and they because they have, we haven't given them the space culturally to do what they really needed to do, and so they create other ways to process. Yeah, it's actually very isolating, right? It's when you're not allowed isolating. to feel the things right. that you are feeling in relation to certain. So, when I think of these things that we're like allowed to grieve or not grieve, I think of this piece that came out. I don't know, maybe like a year ago. Um, they got circulated in a single single ministers group that I'm in. <laughs> so it's a group for ministers who are not partnered. And the point of this piece was that there is a certain kind of thing called um, ambiguous grief. 
and that ambiguous grief is the kind of grieving that is to some degree perpetual because it's unresolved. Mm. So the traditional way of thinking about ambiguous grief is in relation to if you have a relative that has dementia. So they are present, but not present, right? I had a grandmother with Alzheimer's and for the longest time she was alive, but not in any kind of substantive or meaningful way for her children or her grandchildren, right? right? Um, And so ambiguous grief is, you are not yet at that place where you're allowed to just grieve because they aren't dead. Yeah. But but you live in this liminal place, right? right? And so this article around ambiguous grief as it applies to being single was that not for all single people, some are happily single by choice, but that for many who are still wanting to be partnered, there's this layer of ambiguous grief because there's this constant wondering of, Will this ever happen for me or won't it? Mm-hmm. Have I made bad choices? Have I made good choices? You haven't made a, de- there's no definitive wrapping up, right? right? Like the moment of death creates a definitive wrapping up, but there right. isn't that. And so this sort of, you could apply it to other things, right? Aside from singlehood and, and relatives who are in a liminal place of living, you could apply it to- All the climate. I mean, that's where- The climate, where, exactly. Yeah. You could apply it I'd to- I'd apply it to democracy. Right, right. To anything where it's sort of like the uncertainty right. of its- Is it collapsing? We don't know. Exactly. It, are so, we moving into so a fascist state? And that's a whole state? other question no, is what yeah. do we do- what do we do with ambiguous grief? How do we learn to live with ambiguous grief in a way that is grounded and centered, allows for the ambiguity to continue because right. it's not going to get resolved, but also allows us to live and not be stuck. If we think about, you know, you meet somebody on the street, or you know, like you walk into work in the morning and there is this sense of, you know, you're supposed to smile and everything's supposed to be okay. Something is wrong with you if you say, like, I live in ambiguous grief, right? right. Or, but if you say, my life is complicated, I can I tell you that I'm happy this morning to be exactly where we are, doing what we're doing? I, I don't know. I'm. You know. Could you imagine if you actually said that when but, someone right. walked into the office and was like, how right. are you? And you were like, you're like well, yeah. I'm not totally happy to be where I am right. this morning. Let me give you my existential. Right. Yeah. I mean, but there's something about, like, you're talking about the the sort of ongoing grief of being single and in some way of grieving a life that, of part being partnered that you are wishing was true and isn't true. And that's constant. Right? And there are things like that that are just all the time. You just live with that. And that's true for people who are sick also. People who are trying to get pregnant and not oh succeeding. Oh, my, right. That's Constantly, a huge right. ambiguous That grief. was me for sure. Right. There's a lot of that. There's also, I mean, I was just thinking about my dad and just live. My father was alive for three years and couldn't really talk. And I constantly missed him. Now, if someone says, how are you doing today? I don't start with, I really miss my dad, who, by the way, is alive. <laughs> right. I mean, they're just, we don't provide that space for each other to feel those feelings, which also kind of reminds me of all those people who say, I don't know what to say. You know, like something bad happens. And even even something as definitive as death, which feels like this is where we do allow people to grieve, even then it feels like, I didn't call because I didn't know what to say. You know, we don't, first of all, we don't teach each other. We don't, we're uncomfortable with someone else's feelings. So somebody else is incredibly sad and I don't know how to be present to that. So I'm just not going to show up at all. Yeah, this, this, this question of being a, sort of being a burden, right? Or what does it mean to share 
in your wholeness, right? right? So someone at work says, how's it going? And you're like, I don't lead with, I miss my dad who's living, right? right. <laughs> um, even though that might exactly be how you are in that moment. Right. And part of why we don't do that is because we're socialized not to. And right. we're socialized not to because it's perceived as a burden, right? It's perceived as like, if I share this thing with this person, it's going to obligate them to try to help me or do something for me or say the right thing to me, right? When in fact, sometimes all we need is to simply say something, right? right? To have it known and seen in the world and it doesn't actually require. And I think that's where people go wrong a lot at death in terms of how they, what they say or feel comfortable doing in the wake of a death, right? Um, so often we think when we're like walking down the receiving line at the wake or whatever, that we have to say exactly the right thing. that's going to make that person feel better right. about their loved one being dead and nothing's going to make them feel better, right. right? Like that's not the goal, but we're so tuned into trying to fix and solve and right. perfect. Right. And in fact, sometimes all you need is a witness. There's this great story. You probably heard it a thousand times out of this little girl she's our mother sends her off like to the store or whatever to buy something and it takes a long time for her to come back and when she gets back her mother says where were you I expected you half an hour ago and she says well Annie's doll broke and she said well how could you possibly have helped Annie fix her doll and she said oh no I just sat on the step with her and cried there's something about bearing witness to somebody else's pain like that's ministry, right? Yes, I mean, I, mean, is, I can't, literally I can't what we fix, do, but yeah. right? I can't fix right. that doll with you, but I can sit here. Right. I can sit here and be present to the fact that you're really sad. Yeah, I can. I can even cry with you. <laughs> I can always cry with anybody, but I can. You know, I remember the first time someone cried with me. I told him a sad story about my own life. I didn't mean to be telling him the whole story. In fact, it was not only unintentional. It was like I thought I was just giving him this little like oh I'm sorry I wasn't here but I had this other thing going on and and because I told him a tiny bit of it he started to cry and he was sitting across from me he was a minister sitting across from me crying and because he was crying I started really telling him the story now I'm crying and he's crying but (laughs) and it was the first time I'd met him by the way but (laughs) but it felt so good because the story was really sad and just noting it like oh that was just a sad story wouldn't have in any way if you know let me be where I actually was in that meeting I was completely prepared to go to that meeting and do the business we had to do meet this new person and do it but instead he just opened up the possibility of my actually being where I was which made the rest of that meeting incredibly productive but it also created a relationship with him that has lasted for years because he was he was okay with it. He was okay with, with how I felt, with my tears, and he was perfectly comfortable with his own. Like, wow, that's a really sad story. And I'm, in fact, I think I said to him, are you crying? Because <laughs> I had never seen someone do that. Mm. And he said, of course I am. This is a really sad story. And I was like, it really is. <laughs> like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's an, um... And, and I, so I also think about all of the times I've had grieving folks in my office saying, I feel like I keep having to take care of other people's grief, mm-hmm. right? So my husband just died, but 
everybody who's calling, it's like I need to make them feel better. Right. right. So it's this this funny dance we do around each other's emotions and emotional expressions and and what it is that we expect each other to be able to do. Right. Um, and it's just really hard. And I don't have a perfect answer for any of it. I just do really think that living in this way that isolates us when we are feeling grief, whether it's perpetual ambiguous grief or acute grief in the wake of a trauma, it doesn't help any of us to be isolated in these ways, right? And to be denied the capacity or the space or the support in being whole in our grieving. Right. We desperately need each other to have the capacity to be present when we need, when we're feeling not, we're not upbeat and happy and joyful because life isn't that, right? Life is a, is a real cycle. Sometimes things are great and sometimes they're not. This brings in the issue of theology and spirit and how you understand life and the world. So I think that culturally we are told that life should be good. We should be happy. Things should be all the time positive and, and looking forward, right? That's kind of an American had a, a Swiss friend that would mock the ways that Americans say everything is amazing and awesome right. and wonderful. <laughs> right. And like, we just, it's a very American thing to want everything to be spectacular, right? And like following our bliss and like all, like all of these Calvin, things, proof right? of your salvation. Well, yeah. I mean, it obviously has roots, of course. Right. But, but if we could look at things in a different way, if we could understand, as you just articulated, life as ups and downs, good times and bad times, sometimes all at the same time, right? And part of that is also understanding the bigger meta picture of life is also death, right? Death is a part of the cycle of living. It's not something separate. We are created and we are destroyed. It's all part of the same thing. And yet we resist that so heavily. I think it, it then bears out on all of our other ways that we're allowed to feel and process and hold our own wholeness and each other. As, because we don't accept that this is part of the life cycle, we also don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, just regular conversation, I, I'm really comfortable with it, maybe professionally, I don't know why, but I'm perfectly comfortable talking about death. And yet other people, in fact, my father-in-law used to put his fingers in his ears and sing happy stories. I mean, they're literally, they used to do, I swear to God. <laughs> amazing yeah there I go. De- definitely around death but around really anything that was in any way wow. painful like that it was just like that does not belong here yeah. and then when he died nobody knew what he wanted my mother-in-law said i'm doing what i want which honestly makes the most sense anyway yep, but <laughs> but that that they had been married for i don't know 50 something years and had never had that conversation they never talked about what he wanted nuts. in death because people don't talk about it it's not just them they're not the only couple that's been true for like people don't talk about it even when people come to me this is probably true for you too and they come for some specific reason around death and you know they want to talk about getting a financial planner or whatever it is there's still this like real hesitation and i'm constantly saying i'm the minister i'm the person you can talk to even in this space where this is the person you can talk to people don't want to talk about it right they want to be 
uplifted and talk right. about all the happy things. Right. We from, so yeah. resist the even the thought, even though everybody everybody dies, everyone you know is going to die. In a hundred years, not a single person you have ever met will be alive. Yeah. That's what's real. So given that that's what's real, wouldn't it be great if we could start just talking about that? So that's interesting, right? Do we culturally live with the ambiguous grief of the knowledge of our death? Or is that literally just the human condition? I mean, I think I would say that. Both it just <laughs> Well, <laughs> but the human condition, I had someone ask me actually not that long ago, what is it that makes humans different from everyone else? And his answer was not what I would answer. My answer was that humans have an awareness of their dying, right? Like, yeah. That other creatures, to the best of our knowledge, don't know that they will die, to the right. best of our knowledge. Humans have a real acute knowledge that they live with all the time, that one day they will die. And that, that maybe part of why we resist that so much is because that carries an ambiguous grief and we don't want to deal with it because we don't know how to deal with grieving. That would make a lot of sense. It would, wouldn't it? <laughs> and maybe the way out of all of that is to just give each other a little bit more room and a little bit more space to say, mm. today I'm feeling sad because I'm acutely aware of my own mortality. Right. Or today I'm feeling sad because whatever. Um, but to just be there to hear that and not have it be... Right. Something that we have to push away. Right. And I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking what's acceptable socially, or at least more acceptable, tends to be anger. Mm -hmm. So we shift. So somebody says, I feel sad <clears throat> about something ambiguous like that, right? Not something really concrete, but like, a, you know, climate, I feel sad about loss of the environment. We shift so quickly into being angry about it. And I think we push each other into being angry about it and becoming active around it. What are we going to do about it without just saying, yeah, this is sad. And, I, and I'm sorry that you're feeling sad about being single today. And, and the reverse is true. And I, you know, I have three boys and I see this, right? Anger is the easiest place for them to go. Right. And so the work of saying, okay, I see that you're angry. I hear that you're angry. But what is behind being angry? What is, the, what is the sad thing that's activating this anger? I literally had this conversation on Sunday with one of my children. What is it that's, why are you so angry? Could he so get angry? there? Could he, could he A little bit. That? I mean, he's eight, so it wasn't perfect. But, we, you know, <laughs> but yes, he got there a little bit. Like, I think he's beginning to get that more and more, mm. right? That underneath that active anger is a place where you can excavate some sorrow. But that's the work we don't do, right? Right. We, we not only push each other into being active then when we're in that active place we don't pull each other back it's a vicious cycle right um and i think it all comes down to this question of making the room <laughs> in every podcast we try to come up with some action items, something that we can all do to move things forward. So for this week, we're asking you to contact someone, either somebody who had a definitive grief, but a definitive loss some time ago, like outside of the traditional standard, it's been more than a week, you know, six months ago, your father died and give them a call and ask them how they are. Or Maybe it was the kind of loss that isn't so recognized in culture today, like like the loss of a, a job or a position or maybe a pet. 
and ask them how they are. See if you can be present to somebody who's grieving, somebody the rest of society maybe doesn't see right now. So that's our moment of action. And every episode, we also offer a moment of hope. And this week, um, I want to offer this in thinking about this question of how we live with an awareness of dying and how we think about living and dying as part of the same cycle. Um, And for me, I always get hopeful when I remember a conversation with my oldest child when he was very small. We were in the car, and he was talking about how when he would be old, I would be young. And that when I was a baby again, and he was an old man, he would take care of me. Mm-hmm. And I just have always found the, the magical way that children somehow have this cyclical understanding embedded in their minds, right? We trade it out of them, but it's there. And if we can get to that, right, that understanding that all of us come and go, right. I think we'll all be a little better off. Amen. So we've come to the end of our podcast. It's good to be across the table from you again. <laughs> always, Peggy, always. The phone is ringing. Gotta answer it. <laughs> you can go ahead and answer your phone.